This is Dr. Herman Viola, and I've got several stories I thought I would share with you today. They concern Indians in the military. The first story I'd like to tell you about is Lori Piestawa, who is the first American Indian woman killed in combat. Indian women have been in the military for quite a long time, but she was the first person to die. And it's a sad story. Uh, since the attacks of September 11, 2001 on the World Trade Center in New York, the United States has been engaged in an ongoing series of conflicts in the Middle East, primarily Afghanistan, Iraq, and Syria. These conflicts threaten to become the longest wars in American history with no end in sight. Nonetheless, American Indian men and women continue to serve in record numbers and many of them continue to make the ultimate sacrifice, like Private First Class Lorianne Piestawa, a Hopi, the first American Indian woman ever to die in combat while serving in the U.S. Armed Forces. Lori Piestawa was a member of the 507th Maintenance Company. She was 23 when she died on March 25, 2003 in Iraq, just three days into the Iraq War. The mother of a boy and a girl aged four and three, she was part of a large convoy driving a Humvee at night filled with repair equipment and support personnel. Three of the heavier trucks, including hers, became lost and ended up in the very city they had planned to avoid, Nasiria. Immediately they came under attack. At first she evaded the onslaught by racing away as artillery shells pelted her Humvee. She helped rescue two soldiers, but her truck crashed after it was hit by a rocket-propelled grenade. Several of the soldiers in the truck were killed, and she suffered severe head injuries. She died soon after her capture. For her bravery, the Army awarded her the Purple Heart and the Prisoner of War Medal, and they promoted her to specialist. Since her death, many memorials have been erected in her honor. In the Phoenix Mountains, for example, Arizona's state government renamed Squaw Peak as Piestawa Peak. Many have questioned why the young mother enlisted in the Army. Perhaps it was because of her family's military legacy. Her father served in Vietnam. Her grandfather served in Europe during World War II. Or it may have been her ROTC training in high school. Her Hopi friend and classmate, Dewana Talawanama, expected little less, little else. As Dewana recalls, and as she told me when I had a chat with her a couple of weeks ago, Lori was very active in high school. She was always busy preparing herself for up-and-coming events, working out, running. She seemed to be more competitive with herself than with anyone else. We all knew she was the best, so athletic. She participated in ROTC, in softball and band, as well as Hopi dances and events. She was so open, so sharing what she was practicing for, yet her humble attitude was always present. Lori never claimed to be the best. She never boasted about herself. Naturally, when a female is so strong and athletic, boys always want to see just how strong she was, so they would compete with her. Her older brothers, who were also athletic, knew her strength, so they always warned the boys that she's tough and good luck. Her parents called her a tough cookie. When it came to these friendly competitions, girls on the res have phrases like, don't be such a girl, don't cry like a girl, which means don't be so sensitive, don't whine around or expect someone to do it for you, toughen up. If you want it, you have to be willing to put the work in. 
For me, a childhood friend, Dewana told me, it was definitely nice to hear her squad, platoon, and army friends describing her strengths, because that's what she always exuded, what her parents encouraged. It's what she got from our culture, and it was what she learned from her family. Strength, a strong woman, one who knows when to nurture, and one who protects, a true warrior. Another story I'm going to tell you about is about a Passamaquoddy Indian from Maine. Of the 12,000 Indians who served in World War I, more than 8,000 were volunteers. It is an astonishing number. Even more astonishing, the Passamaquoddy of Maine, one of the numerically smallest tribes in the United States, fielded 100 volunteers for the Army and Navy out of a total population of only 386. Among those volunteers were Passamaquoddy Governor William Neptune and his son Moses, and Moses was one of the last U.S. servicemen killed in World War I. Moses enlisted in 1917 at the age of 19, and he died in the Argonne Forest along with 10 other men of the 103rd Infantry Regiment on November 10, 1918. The armistice was signed the following morning. According to the unit's chaplain, who wrote a letter of condolence to Governor Neptune, Moses and his ten comrades were buried together in a beautiful spot on the hillside, with the entire battalion gathered around them. After the Christian service, which included taps and a military salute, the chaplain wrote, We noticed three German officers coming, flying the white flag of surrender. It was a most fitting close, the chaplain thought. The very thing for which your son and his comrades had given their lives had come to pass. I am sure that from heaven they looked and saw that they had not died in vain. But 2,738 more Allied soldiers did die in vain because the French commander-in-chief of the forces on the Western Front, Field Marshal Ferdinand Foch, ordered fighting to continue until 11 a.m. on November 11th, French time even though the Germans had pleaded for an immediate end to hostilities to prevent the further loss of life. As a result, the Great War officially ended at 11 o'clock on the morning of the 11th day of the 11th month of 1918, Triple 11s. The last American to die at 10.59 a.m. on November 11th was not Moses Neptune, but Henry Gunther of Baltimore, the son of German immigrants. Henry Gunther received a Distinguished Service Cross. Moses Neptune was granted U.S. citizenship posthumously on June 2, 1924, in accordance with the act signed that day granting citizenship to all Indians born in the United States. The third story is about Otis Leader, another Indian who fought in World War I. On April 5, 1917, the day before the United States officially entered World War I, a Choctaw ranch worker named Otis Leader was on a cattle buying trip with two Swiss companions in Fort Worth, Texas. There they were confronted by U.S. Secret Service agents who suspected them of being German spies because of their accents. One week later, the 35-year-old Choctaw, still angry at the unfair accusation, enlisted in the Army. By June, he was in France and became a member of the Choctaw Telephone Squad. Because Leader and his unit, the 1st Division, were the first American combat troops to arrive in France, they were invited to march in a 
Fourth of July parade in Paris. A French artist who was commissioned to paint the ideal U.S. soldier selected leader. As the artist later explained, he picked the man from Oklahoma because he was straight as an arrow, standing over six feet tall. He was keen, alert, yet with calmness that betokened strength, and his naturally bronze face reflecting the spirit that the Americans took across with them, the spirit that eventually turned the tide of battle in World War I. The artist had not exaggerated. General Pershing, commander of the armed forces, later called leader the war's greatest fighting machine, and a fighting machine he was. According to news accounts, in heavy fighting at Chateau Thierry on July 18, 1918, his machine gun company received some of the very first German fire to hit American soldiers. When three of the four men and his machine gun crew were killed, Leader grabbed a rifle, ran to the Germans, and captured 18. Leader, who rapidly rose to the rank of sergeant, was wounded twice and gassed three times. For his valor, Leader received a Purple Heart, two Silver Stars, the Distinguished Service Cross, nine Battle Stars, and two individual awards of France's highest military honor, the Croix de Guerre. And Leader survived the war and lived to the age of 61. I'm now going to tell the story of my good friend, Joseph Medicine Crow, who adopted me 30 years ago. And we shared each other's stories and names. He named me for his favorite grandfather, One Star, and his Indian name was Hybrid. When World War II broke out, Joseph Medicine Crow was at the University of Southern California working on his Ph.D. in anthropology. But he had come from a long line of war chiefs. And so he f said right away, as soon as war was declared, he said, I knew I had to go and enlist. So he went to the recruiting office. As it turned out, the recruiting officer was a buddy of his. They'd gone to Linfield College together. They actually had room together. And so when his friend saw him, he said, well, Joe, uh, I can send you to officer candidate school because you're, you know, working on your PhD. And Joe said, no. He said, I can't do that. He said, I have to work my way up through the ranks like a crow warrior would do. You never start out as a chief. You have to start out first by going on as a young, you know, apprentice warrior. So as Joe told me later, he said it was the biggest mistake he ever made because the U.S. Army did not work on the same principles of the crow nation. And so he entered the army as a private, and he ended as a private. And in fact, he said, I wasn't even a combat soldier at first. They put me in an office because of my education. I had to do paperwork. And I spent the first two years of World War II doing paperwork. But finally, towards the end of the war, when they needed more personnel, they finally sent me to a combat unit. So anyhow, he was put into a group that was in the front lines, and he said, I was in that unit all the way to the very end. And he said to myself, he said, here was finally my chance to be a warrior, to meet an enemy in combat. But in truth, I knew little about being a warrior, only the stories I had heard growing up. In the pre-reservation days, a young crow man aspiring to be a warrior would go into the Wolf Teeth Mountains and seek spiritual power. He believed that this power would make him a better warrior and make him more successful in performing war deeds and help him eventually to become a chief with great wealth. 
high prestige and a large following. The crow called this spiritual experience going without water. Over three or four days of fasting, the young man hoped to receive a visit by an animal spirit, a spirit who was an emissary from the first maker, or the great spirit, as the Indians call him. Sometimes the vision seeker would cut off a finger, adding to the pain of a blood sacrifice to his hunger and thirst. The ordeal was voluntary, and not all young men believed they needed a personal vision to be a successful warrior. Some preferred to go directly to a veteran warrior or spiritual leader and get his blessing. Having been raised Christian, I never attempted a traditional vision quest. I preferred to do my communicating with the first maker in church, but I still believed in traditional sources of spiritual power. During my tour of duty in Germany, I always carried with me a special feather that had belonged to a Shoshone Sundance chief from Fort Wasaki. He had given it to my Uncle Tom Yellowtail. It was a little, fluffy, snow-white eagle feather. Before a battle, I would put the feather inside my helmet. In addition to carrying the feather, I recited certain prayers and painted myself with a red lightning streak and red ring. I did not put the paint on my face, but on my arms under my shirt. My uncle taught me how to paint myself properly. If I did not have paint, I could use a red pencil. That worked as well as paint. When I was under fire, I felt much better because of my special spiritual medicine. To this day, I credit my medicine for saving my life during several close encounters with the Germans. One such encounter occurred when my company came under artillery and mortar fire while we were marching on the side of a narrow valley. The Germans were directly across from us. We were sitting ducks, but I felt pretty well prepared. My knapsack was full of pemmican, a special treat of pounded meat that my mother had sent me. I had my rifle, I had painted the symbols on my arms, and I had put the medicine feather in my helmet. Suddenly, everything went black. An artillery shell had exploded right in front of me. It killed or wounded about a half dozen of the soldiers nearest me. The blast knocked me right off the side of a cliff along the edge we were walking on. The hillside was very steep and covered with trees and rocks. I could hear guys moaning all around me. Miraculously, I was not hurt, just bruised a bit. But my helmet was gone. My medicine feather was gone. My knapsack with the pemmican was gone. My rifle was gone. I felt helpless. I was in shock. It was now nighttime, and the hill was so steep I couldn't walk. I had to crawl out of there. I began by pulling myself up the hill by grabbing one branch, then a tree, then another. First, I found my rifle. A little farther up the hill, I found my knapsack. And next to the last tree at the top of the hill, I found my helmet with the feather still tucked in the liner. When I put the helmet back on, I came to my senses. Everything was now all right, but I admit I had panic there for a while. I have always attributed that particular sequence of good luck to my special Indian medicine. Whenever I had a close call, I would think about that medicine. After I returned from the war, I gave that feather to one of my cousins, Henry Old Coyote. He was a machine gunner on a B-25. That feather went with him to Africa, Germany, and Italy. I think after the Second World War, that feather then went to Korea with a Crow soldier. It might have even gone to Vietnam. I don't know where that feather is now, but it certainly was powerful.